This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Salesforce. Salesforce leverages the power of its people and its products to improve the state of the planet together with its customers. For more information, visit salesforce.com sustainability. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why nature is our ally during a pandemic, venture capital finds a home in real estate, going circular in the Great Lakes, and can the company behind Snickers change capitalism? We found our sweet spot this week on 350. It's September 18th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is enjoying another week off, so joining me is my esteemed colleague, Green Biz Associate Editor, Deanna Anderson. Hey, Deanna. Hey, Joel. Oh, man. Uh, what a crazy week. Uh, how was yours? Um, there's been a lot going on. Been trying to keep up with everything with Heather gone. We miss you, Heather. <laughs> um, but it's been a good week. How, how about you? Well, you know, I have two words for this week. Clean air. It's back, baby. Yes. Uh, we we went through a really bad patch, as I think most people in the world know here in California. Uh, we had uh, air quality index under 50 is considered good. Uh, and then it goes through the sequence of you know, poor, unhealthy, hazardous, and oh, my God. And we were in oh, my God territory. We were up at like 350 something a week or so ago. Uh, an air quality index, and now we're back down as of uh, this morning to like 25, which is just beautiful. And going outside is it's like it's like discovering the world all over again. I hate, even though it's only been a, a week or a few days, and I've been outside plenty during that time. It just all of a sudden you can do it. So yeah. So so uh, what are you going to do uh, this weekend with your newfound uh, breathable air? Well, I uh, recently ordered some roller skates and I no. got a shipping notification. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm going to get out on the streets and do some skating. So is this something you know how to do and have done before and you just have getting some new skates or is this a new a new pastime for you? It's a new pastime. Growing up, I used to go to the skating rink with like family and friends, but this is a whole new thing for me in adulthood, and I'm super excited about it. It's before the pandemic struck, I was going to classes at the gym, and this feels like an alternative to that since gyms are still not all the way open here. <laughs> and so, are these the inline kind or the four on the floor? What, what, what's the format here? The four on the floor. <laughs> 
Yes. Cool. <laughs> well, uh, do send pictures. We need to need to share that with the team and seeing what uh, you got the elbow pads and all that stuff too. Is it all the equipment or just the skates? Just the skates for now, but I definitely feel like I will um, invest in some, <laughs> in some uh, gear just to be safe uh, and do a side by side with me as a little kid with the same type of gear and my roller skates. Now, I totally need to see that picture. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, stay safe out there uh, when you do that. I definitely want to hear about it. But that's the week ahead. But let's go back to the week in review. So, Deanna, I want to start this week's week in review with a piece that you did that came out of our Circularity 20 conference a couple weeks back. And there were still mining that great uh, mother load of, of sessions and speakers and ideas that came out of that. And and you did one on something that's fairly fundamental, which is the role of design and how that's pivotal, as the headline says, for building circular economies. Tell me about the piece and and who you talked to and what it's about. Yeah, so there were so many sessions at Circularity 20 about design. I think I counted over 20 of them. Um, And basically what this piece talks about is just how important being intentional about design is. Um, While I was attending sessions and also writing this story, I thought about how everything in our lives is designed. Um, And I was reminded of even how like the Instagram little logo that is on our phones is designed. And I was really struck by a lot of the conversations that discussed how it's necessary for companies and governments and any other stakeholders who are trying to build circular economies to really think about what they want the circular economy to look like. Um, And something that really stuck out to me is designing out waste, because that's one of the like key principles of the circular economy. Yeah, our friend uh, Bill McDonough likes to say that design is uh, society's first signal of intention, and um, and that certainly is true with the circular economy. Uh, but uh, one of the speakers, and I think you wrote about here, is is Tim Brown, the uh, CEO of IDEO. Um, he's pretty interesting. What what did you take away from from his presentation? So one of the things that he said that really struck me um, was. And this is a quote, uh, the struggle we have with the circular economy, like so many systems, is that we can't stop the existing system, turn the switch off, design a new thing that we think is good, as is as good as it could ever be, and then launch it. So that to me means that we have to like keep iterating and try to make our systems better because we are also living in this system and we can't just like turn it off. Um, and also it reminds me that Nothing will ever be perfect as we create these new systems and these new circular economies, but we have to keep trying to improve them. He was a great speaker. I encourage folks to go watch that if you missed that session. It's on our site. Yeah, we have a bunch of videos up from Circularity 20. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really important point that this, like everything in sustainability, is a journey and um, lots of fits and starts and lots of incrementalism and once in a while some breakthrough uh, swing for the fences kinds of bigger plays but we have to accept that and there's a lot of uh it, it cuts both ways one is that every little bit is progress but there's also a lot of companies out there that i think talk about we're a circular economy company or it's a circular 
toothbrush or whatever it is and 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 sort of done with that and and they're just sort of using it because it's it's a, a hip term right now and and people are starting to think in those terms and so they want to speak in those terms um but yeah we have to figure out how to balance that incremental that inevitable you know step by step one foot in front of the other of progress with keeping those bigger goals of what we're all trying to do here. So yeah, and then, and then there were some sessions, a bunch of sessions on on design. I know I moderated a couple of them, but you attended uh, some others as well. Yeah, I attended some. I moderated an, one of them. Um, I moderated a session about durable design, um, and that was with someone from Samsonite, Christine Riley Miller, and Lauren Smith from um, Columbia Sportswear. Um, and basically, they were trying to make the case for durable design and the impact that that could have on the circular economy. Um, something that stood out to me when talking with them is just how important designing for durability can be for like customer loyalty and how they, it can also keep a lot of stuff out of the landfill. Um, both of those companies are thinking a lot about like repairability for their products and um, I just think it's so important <laughs> that these conversations are happening. Yeah, absolutely. And sticking with uh, circular economy and circularity 20, there's another story we ran this week, again, continuing to mine that vein, is about the lessons from the, the, the Great Lakes region of the United States on reaching circularity at scale. And what was fascinating about this, this came from Peter Fadul, who's Associate Manager of Sustainability and Circular Economy Program at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, is that circularity ultimately kind of needs to be local. Um, sort of uh, thinking about material flows and energy flows and water and, and, and how to mine waste uh, locally, waste streams. Uh, so instead of you know, sending things to Southeast Asia or to China that then ships that waste back as, as you know, raw materials for new new materials. Um, how do we do this locally? And so, you know, here's you got Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, Wisconsin, this great region, uh, huge population. Um, and they've been working on this. There have been a number of organizations that have been focusing on what does a regional circular economy look like? So this piece delves into that and, and specifically on, on steel, plastics, and pulp and paper, three heavily used materials of what it would take uh, for, for those to be circular in the Great Lakes region. And I think, by the way, that's a really important thing is that you know, we were talking about one foot in front of the other step by step. Um, this is three materials, and heck, they could have started with just one. Uh, how do we just deal with plastics at the at the regional level? And think about that. But you throw in steel and and then pulp and paper, all, all three of which are ubiquitous. Uh, that's a big chunk of 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 commerce and waste and material flows to be looking at. So I'm I'm excited about this conversation that they've got going and the investigations that they've been in and. There's some, uh, I think it's just an interesting story about uh, the progress they're making and the conversations they're having about what it would take to make the Great Lakes region circular. Definitely. Uh, while you were talking, something that um, I thought about related to that piece is just how important it is to measure where you're currently at as it relates to circularity or any other sustainability goals. 
uh, that's something that was one of the lessons that they pointed out in that piece or that Peter pointed out in that piece. And something else that I think stood out is just like the encouragement of making sure that all the corporations that are working in a region also plug into the ecosystem of <laughs> of the region, like whether that's folks who are working in the waste stream or just other organizations that are doing similar work that could help them reach their goals. Um, I think at GreenBiz, we always talk a lot about partnerships at all of our events. And I just think that it should be encouraged as they do in this piece. Yeah, circularity is definitely a team sport and, and more so than than even other sustainability initiatives because, you know, who who's going to be off taking the 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 used steel and putting it it may not be another steel company it may not be an obvious player it may be someone who has not been part of the steel value chain but uses it uh in in some fashion and and same with pulp and paper and definitely with plastics you never know where that second or third life of this material is going to be and that may inevitably means working with uh, sort of non-traditional partners and collaborating with with new new friend, newfound friends and and uh, sectors and so i think that's really interesting so yeah this piece really sort of touches on a number of key things and, and to your point diana around metrics and being not just being able to say sure we have a circular economy or we're building a circular economy but how do you actually measure progress and is that through reduced waste streams are you is it uh, other kinds of material flows we may not even yet have the kinds of metrics we need for this and but that's going to be an important part of the equation but pivoting here and speaking of driving change uh that brings up the third story i want to talk about you know where this is going uh that katie fairnbacher uh, our colleague who is a senior writer and analyst covering transportation and running the verge transport conference that's part of verge coming up at the end of october did a, a fascinating thing uh, looking at elon musk's tesla startup ecosystem and i think what's what's really interesting is that any new industry inevitably is a spin-off of of uh, one or two or three companies that spawn uh, just a whole ecosystem as as it says here uh, PC there's IBM and Hewlett-Packard which made calculators at the time and and, and a, num- a number of companies that aren't around anymore that that not only st- may have started some of these things but ultimately spawned a, a number of entrepreneurs who left the company or partnered with the company is a little firm up in in in, Mich- in Washington state called uh, what's it called oh yeah Microsoft that you know really came out of a licensing deal of software with IBM this guy called Bill Gates and and his his partner uh, you know looked at at working out of IBM and, and that really spawned Microsoft and so we're seeing that now with electric cars and Katie wrote this great piece in naming I think 12 different companies that have been founded by Tesla alumni. That really interesting doing and not just in transportation a lot of it's in energy and and, and batteries but also in mobility. What what did you take away from this Diana? I mean, I think just having access to capital and having a, a ecosystem of folks that you can kind of bounce ideas off of. I think that's just amazing. <laughs> um, and I feel like that is what Tesla 
it seems like has done because something that Katie mentioned in the piece is like, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just 12 companies that have been uh, spawned out of the Tesla network, but I'm curious about like how many more there are and how many more there can be in the future. Um, so yeah, that's, that's something that really struck me with this piece. Yeah. And as I said, they're not all transportation or even battery, which are the two main things you'd think about. There's a company that I, I'd actually been looking at, uh, thinking about from my home that called SPAN, S-P-A-N, which makes a smart energy panel. It's a fuse box, as some people call it, uh, for residential use that, where you can, uh, it's can easily adaptive and configurable for adding solar or storage or electric vehicle charging uh, in your home uh, and you can you know control things with an app and see exactly where things are and if you want if the if if the en- energy is cheaper from storage than it is from the grid uh, or you, you want to you know save costs you can source power from the battery storage any any number of things it's it doesn't do all those things but it it allows the flexibility in your system that you can control all those things through one panel. Um, I mean, that's something we've been talking about in energy for a long time. And, and it's just, it's a piece of technology that, that, that could be a game changer and started by Tesla's former product chief of energy, Arch Rao. Um, just one example of how these things start to go off in a number of directions and uh, a company that helped wean Brazil off of oil power generators during blackouts uh, formed, formed by Marco Kraples, who we've had on stage at, at our conferences, a former Tesla VP. Fascinating story about how one company can, can really make a difference, not just with the products and services it puts out, but with the people who it puts out in effect and who then go on to to do other things that are uh, that all of a sudden you've got a, a cluster of not just startups but the financiers and the and the customers and the the technology experts needed in that cluster and uh, you know will Silicon Valley become uh, even more of a hub for EV uh, R&D than it has been um, if so I think we'll have good old Elon Musk to thank for that. Last week, the global company Mars, best known for candy bars and pet foods, launched an independent platform called Economics of Mutuality, to encourage collaboration and help shape the inclusive business model of the future. Its stated purpose is to empower companies to adopt a responsible and more complete form of capitalism, one that's fairer and performs better than today's purely financial version. Joining me from Geneva, Switzerland, to talk about the economics of mutuality is its founder and executive director and former Mars chief economist, Bruno Roche. Hey, Bruno. Thank you, Joel. So there are a number of organizations looking at the future of the corporation. There's Corporation 2020, World Economic Forum, McKinsey, Deloitte, a lot of other organizations have been looking at corporate purpose, the business roundtables, another notable one. Why another one? Well, actually, maybe the the distinctive aspect of the work we're doing, when it started, how it started, and for what purpose. It started actually in 2006, the end of 2006. 
And it started from a very unusual conversation that took place between the management of Mars and the, uh, the board, and, 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 and I was involved in that conversation. And the question was, what should be the right level of profit for a company like Mars? Is there like a number, a level of profit that would maximize the performance of the company in the ecosystem in which it operates? So that question was fairly unusual. And actually, to, it came to me, I was just nominated chief economist for the company. So I was part of this conversation. And to my great surprise, Joel, that this question has never been studied in management science or in economics. It's a blind spot. It's been studied in philosophy, in theology, but not in economics. So that's, in my view, the two elements of distinctiveness that we are uh, sharing with, with the world today. Why do you think Mars even had this conversation in the first place? It's a privately held company, or at least largely owned by the Mars family. Why did they care how much money they were making? I think it was, I mean, I mean I, of course, I don't, I no longer speak on behalf of Mars. So I, I, I left uh, now five weeks ago, so I'm, I'm very clear about my new role. But in a sense, the, this question was not only uh, something that you would discuss with, with people from Mars. Uh, Entrepreneurs and business people are fascinated by performance. They are driven by performance. And eventually, the financial performance is just one aspect of it. And the notion actually is that taking too much profit could eventually be detrimental to the overall performance of the business is, was one of the aspects actually of what was driving the, uh, the question. When I talk about this issue, I say, well, you see, well, uh, business existed before financial capitalism. It will exist after financial capitalism. Eventually, financial capitalism could be a very small parenthesis in the history of business. And so, yeah, uh, when we do, when you deal with real entrepreneurs, with real business people, they are not only driven by financial performance. Financial performance is one aspect of it, and usually it is the outcome, and not the primary purpose of uh, of their of their objective. So, what's this new entity going to do? What's the first thing that's going to come out of it? Well, it's a uh, it's, it is something which has been in existence for the last 14 years already. So it's not something new in its content. What is new is that we are now making the, the, uh, the, the concrete uh, steps to, to make it available. And in a sense, the, the, the platform that we are uh, now uh, launching uh, is going to, to amplify these two initiatives. The first one is a foundation, a public interest foundation, independent from Mars. And the purpose of the foundation is to... Uh, nurture research and education and promote a new school of sorts in the space of and it is a public good that's why it is a public interest foundation and in parallel uh, we are also setting up a management consultancy or a small design company which is entirely owned by the uh, foundation so that there is no confusion about the uh, overall purpose and the purpose of this uh, of this uh, management consultancy is to implement economics of mutuality as a management innovation in businesses and finance. So what, what, we, what we want to continue to do over the next, uh, the next decade is to continue the research and education on this new school of thought, which we think is a good news for the world, but also that it has a strong, uh, practical, uh, implementable aspect, which essentially developing uh, helping business, as we say in our vision, help business thrive by meeting the needs of the world. So these two components will actually constitute the, uh, the two visions of the, of the movement. 
Tell me about the name. Economics of mutuality isn't a term I'd heard or that's self-explanatory, where you say the name and people immediately get what's going on. Where did the name come from? Well, it came from, um, it came from, from the, the word mutuality, which is uh, one of the uh, uh, driving principles of Mars, one of the five principles of Mars. But it's coming from the fact that um, the idea that building reciprocal or mutual relationships is, um, is a stronger driver to value creation than power relationship. And that there is something special about, and mutuality is not about uh, charity. It's not about giving away. It's about establishing a reciprocal relationship between two parties. We wanted to honor this, uh, this, uh, this principle that actually has been part of, a, of the DNA and story of Mars uh, with other four principles, but we wanted to talk about the economics of it. So it's not only a nice principle, it's not only something, it's not only a value, it's not only something that we put on the, on the wall. It is actually a, a powerful uh, principle, but that needs to be translated in a superior economic model. So we called it the economics of mutuality because of this. It may not be very uh, catchy in terms of marketing uh, name. So we are thinking about it, when we talk about the EOM now, maybe EOM sounds like a bit better than just economics of mutuality, but I agree we have to explain it a little bit, but it is an intellectual uh, product. It's not um, a Mars bar. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, the marketing uh, has to be a bit, a bit different, I suppose. Yeah. But it's a, well, good, it's a good provocation. I agree with you. So if this thing works, what's going to happen? What's the change you want to see in the world that, where you can draw a straight line from the economics of mutuality to some kind of outcome? We, we are really fortunate to have this, this platform launched now. I mean, I learned from my, I mean, from, from the old, uh, from the old friend in, in philosopher in France that they say, it's good to be right. It's better to be right at the right time. You can choose to be right or wrong, but you can't choose whether your the time is right or not. And I think we are now at a time when this kind of thinking is right because uh, we are providing good news. We are saying to business that it's possible to perform and even overperform financially by meeting the needs of the world. And, uh, and I think it's very powerful. So my vision, of course, I mean, I, I want this movement to be great. I want this movement to, to grow. I want to be, this movement to be visible. I want this movement to have impact. But you see, if it can only impact a few, and that actually the few impact a few, and the few impact a few, eventually this movement will take place. And I called my previous, my previous organization Catalyst when I was at Mars, because I, I thought actually that we want to play the role of a catalyst. And the, and the, and, and the catalyst eventually is a, is a chemical agent that actually disappears in the end. It, it facilitates a reaction, but eventually it, it disappears in the end. So if the role of, uh, of EOM is to, uh, is to be a catalytic, even to actually to help business embrace a new form of value creation that would, uh, that that would solve the problem of people and planets, that would be actually a great success. Well, that would be a great thing. It's fascinating, and I'll look forward to watching your work and seeing where it goes. And yes, this may be the right thing at the right time. Bruno Roche is Managing Director of the newly launched Economics of Mutuality platform launched by the global food company Mars. Thanks so much, Bruno. Thank you, Joel.
Founder Piece this week by Deborah Brosnan, the president and founder of Deborah Brosnan and Associates, uh, that looked at how to rein in greenhouse gas emission, uh, energy intensive devices, and, and put markets to work, as she called it. But Diana, you went a, a step further and decided to say, not let's not just look at what uh, she said, but let's find out who said it. You had a conversation with Deborah Brosnan. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so Dr. Deborah Brosnan, she is an Irish-born and U.S.-based scientist who specializes in marine resilience and environmental risk reduction. Um, so I spoke with her and we discussed a project that she recently worked on with the government of Barbuda and her vision for rebuilding uh, both environmental and health resilience. Um, I'm going to share that interview and it picks up with my first question about how companies and governments should be aligning their work with nature. So first of all, I think nature is our ally and we're seeing this in coronavirus, the importance of nature to all of us as we are stopped from seeing each other, meeting each other. The first thing that people started to notice was nature, bird song, deer in the garden. And we started to reconnect with nature and that should be our first hint as to how important nature is to all of us as a comfort, as a solace, and as an ally in these difficult times. But now let's uh, ratchet that up a little bit and think about how do we align with nature and how do we make our planet a better place because of aligning with nature. So everything we do, whether it's to build a road, whether it's to build a marina, whether it's to build a town, we do on a dynamic landscape, on an ecosystem that's functioning. And that landscape provides us with certain values and it provides us with services. It may be flood control, it may be protection against storm. And we need to understand what those services are and how, how they bring value to us before we actually start to do something on that landscape, whether it's to deforest, whether it's to build. And when I say align with nature, I mean that our very first action should be to look at the landscape the ecosystem in which we're living and understand how it functions. And then to decide what it is we need and we want and how we make that happen with the way that nature functions. So let me give you an example from our own work. So a few years ago, an investor bought this beachfront property and it was over half a mile long. And he came to us and talked to us because he wanted to build a seawall along the whole property which he felt would protect his property, provide privacy, and also maintain, a, maintain his beach and maintain some distance with the beach. And so we talked with him and said, you know, if you build a seawall, what you will do is you will remove your beach completely and you will have to always maintain that seawall because the way the beach works is the sea comes in and when it's stormy, it takes some of that sand out and the beach gets narrower. And then when it's calm, the sea returns the beach or you have a beautiful wide beach that people can use and you yourself want to walk on. The best thing to do for that beach is not to build a seawall, but to rebuild the dune system to about 12 feet tall, plant those dunes with lots of dune vegetation, native vegetation, which creates a habitat. And that dune will protect you from the storm surges that come and go. It will provide you with privacy and it will protect your property. And so he agreed to do that. And so within a year, we had rebuilt an entire dune system, planted it with about, you know, I think 20,000 different plants. Um, and it was functioning within a year and a half. 
That dune withstood four major hurricanes, never lost the entire beach, beach narrowed, beach widened. The dune protected the beach and it protected the property behind it. Because it was vegetated, he had all of the privacy he needed behind there. The cost of that for him was somewhere between $200,000 and $225,000 to restore that entire dune system and all of the plants. His savings were over half a million dollars, which would have cost to do a wall, not to mention all of the um, upkeep of that wall and also having to bring back a beach because the wall would have taken the beach away. Um, that same beach got hit by Hurricane Irma in 2017, winds of 200 miles an hour. And those dunes took a beating, but they held the line and they protected his property. So when the insurance people came out to look for damage, the insurance uh, adjuster turned to him and said, you know, if you hadn't built that dune, you would have nothing left of your property now, nothing, because a storm would have come in. And that to me is one example of how we can align with nature and use the way that nature works and use the dynamics of nature to protect ourselves and to provide the services and the needs that we want. You know, from an engineering perspective, we can build a road from point A to point B. And if we don't take the time to understand the habitat and the ecosystem we're building on, we can do two things. We could create flooding on one side of the road, or we could divide a community in two and have community on one side, community on another that cannot connect. So aligning with nature, spending the time to understand nature, and then aligning our actions with us provides us with a much more resilient community and a much more resilient natural planet. So it sounds like we just need to lean into everything that nature has already provided for us and actually try to retain that in order to help mitigate the effects of climate change. Absolutely. Nature provides so much. All we have to do is step back and look. So I, I kind of want to learn a little bit more about another project that you worked on. Um, you recently spearheaded um, a project between a land developer and the government of Barbuda uh, to save endangered turtles. Um, and I'm curious about, like, if you can just tell me what that project looked like and why it's important to design solutions that support the environment, communities, and also financial returns. And I feel like you kind of started talking about that already. Yeah, so this project is on the, the island of Barbuda, and there's a developer who's doing a development along the coast. And along that coast, we know that sea turtles come and nest. There's some his, historic evidence of sea turtle nesting, but nobody really knows exactly where they nest. So we spoke with the developer and said, you know, these, these turtles are critically endangered, particularly hawksbill turtles. There's only about 8,000 nesting females left in the world. They used to be so abundant that they would get in the way of ships at one point. So the numbers are way down to 8,000 uh, nesting females. And so we decided that what we would like to do is to start a sea turtle monitoring program for two several reasons, actually. One, to identify how many sea turtles were in the area, where they were nesting, and particularly where they were nesting in relation to the development. A second reason for doing it was we wanted to reach out to the community and provide training in scientific skills. So we hired four to six people in the community initially to come and learn how to do sea turtle monitoring 
how to use GPS to identify a nest, to mark and identify a nest, how to take those data, put it on a GIS map, how to monitor nests, how, and finally how to tag sea turtles. So that we now have this group of, of individuals who are local, who know how to do the science of sea turtle monitoring. Uh, they're hired to do this work, so it brings some money back into the community. And the great part of this is that this program is now tied into the international widecast sea turtle monitoring program. So all the data they collect goes directly into the global knowledge on, of sea turtles going out to 40 nations in the world. So, so the community is now connected internationally through science and through protection of the environment. On top of that, because these sea turtles are coming ashore to nest on the coast and there's development on the coast, we can use those data to say to the developer, this is where we're finding the sea turtle nests. This is the area we have to protect. And this is the area where we have to plant native vegetation because sea turtles are tuned to the kind of vegetation and the slope you get on the beach. And they will only nest with a particular slope, slope and vegetation. So this local team who really are amazing, go out four or five nights a week they patrol the beaches for several hours in the dark and they're monitoring where the sea turtles are. And that in turn can feed back directly into the kind of development that takes place and the kind of protection for the environment. And the developer has told us that for them, that also helps them with the tourism product and the sales product of bringing people out because they love sea turtles. So we feel like we have a win across the board and we feel like we have this extraordinary team of young I would call them young naturalists and young scientists who are out there spearheading this effort now. Yeah. So I kind of want to shift gears a little bit um, to talk more about what's going on in our world right now with COVID-19. Right now, it's a little more widely known that like environmental destruction increases the likelihood that novel zoonotic diseases like COVID-19 will infect humans. And I'm curious if you can share like what your vision is for rebuilding the environmental and health resilience. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. We're in, in the midst of a of a pandemic that science predicted, but none of us really imagined would happen at the level that it has done. So my vision for environmental and health resilience is basically based on the fact that our world is really in the midst of two crises right now, two major crises. One is coronavirus and the other is climate change. Um, both of those are linked to environmental destruction and environmental damage. And for me, the vision to build environmental, environmental health and, and human health, public health, is basically finding a solution to both of those. And I think we can do it together. So we can start basically by looking at where we are in the world and saying, how do we recover? How do our communities recover? How does our world recover? And one of the first ways is looking at green infrastructure. We can start to use renewable energies to reduce carbon emissions, to create different kinds of jobs in, in the energy field. We can start using nature-based solutions, as I told you, like dunes to protect against storm surge, reefs. We know that if we uh, recreate wetlands, we reduce flooding by 29%. So using nature-based solutions, restoring nature, creating space again for nature. 
planting trees, reforesting to cut down on carbon emissions will help create more space between wildlife and humans and reduce the the interaction for the spread of the next uh, pandemic or, or virus. So by doing green infrastructure, and I think that's going. That's one of these are one of the key ways that we can start. And the other is is really beginning to count the cost of carbon emissions and start factoring the environment and social well-being into how we measure how our world is doing and how our communities are doing. Can I give you an example of what I mean? Yes, I would love an example. Yeah. So um, this is more on a on a larger scale, but we measure across the globe. We measure countries. We measure communities by GDP which is their ability to earn and their ability to grow. Um, so when we use this measurement only, it allows us to measure the number of cars a country produces, the number of forest products a community produces, and these are all positive. What we don't measure is the cost of emissions from those cars, the cost in terms of disease from deforestation, or any of the other costs in terms of community well-being, in terms of education, in terms of inequity. And we manage what we measure. And if we can, in our, our world going forward, start to measure things like carbon emissions, restoration of ecosystems. I think mental health is very important right now because we're seeing a lot of stress from uh, coronavirus inequity and start to bring those into expand GDP to bring in these kind of wellness indices, we will put our world in a much stronger place to be more resilient going forward. Because right now GDP is the or some derivative of it is really the only measure that we use for credit worthiness, for loans, for nations, particularly for developing nations. And so we encourage them to use metrics that appear to benefit them, but in the long run come with a cost. And I think now as a planet, we've reached a point where the cost far exceeds the benefit. And we've got to start expanding our concept of, of how we measure the state of the planet and tie that into spending, which just becomes most important, into how we how we spend, how we give loans, how countries invest, where they put their money. And right now we're not doing that, but we could. Definitely. Um, and to wrap up, I have one last question for you. Um, so I want to go back to your TEDx talk um, in which you say, how can we not feel powerless? And you mentioned this after um, talking about our planet be on, being on track uh, for global average temperatures to rise above two degrees Celsius. I'm curious if um, you can share a little bit about like what keeps you hopeful that we won't reach that point. Yeah, I, I am hopeful. I'm optimistic. Um, and for me, it comes back to the idea of think globally, act locally. When I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about what is it that I can do that makes this planet better? What can I contribute to the lives of other people that will inspire them to do something positive for the planet and do something positive for their community? And I find that I'm surrounded by people who feel the same and that people can make a difference, whether it's going reducing your plastic, whether it's carrying your own water bottle, whether it's recycling, 
whether it's volunteering to for ecosystems, whether it's in your in your workplace insisting on various environmental measures being taken. And with politicians, I've met with politicians who over time I've talked to about the importance of environment and then have turned around to me and said, you know, Deborah, the real issue is that we need to protect our environment. And if we protect our environment, we won't have these problems. And I feel that if we are all out there doing the best we can, consciously doing the best we can, we do make a difference. And I say this because I've seen the differences. I've seen people work on degraded coral reefs and bring them back. I've seen people change fisheries practices. I've seen people really try and include environment in their policies, whereas before they didn't. And it's the fact that I know we can do it because we are doing it. And we tend to focus in the media on on the terrible stories because there are many. There's, let's not uh, sugarcoat it. But sometimes we miss the fact that in every community there are people out there making a difference. And when you start to add it all up, it's a huge amount. Definitely. People are doing the work. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm excited to read about it all the time. They really are. And, and, and they're out there and, and you see them every day. Thanks for continuing to be hopeful, uh, Dr. Brosnan. Thank you for coming on Green Biz 350. Thank you so much for having me, Diana, And thank you for all the good work that you do and bringing the importance of the environment and the importance of good business practices into the world. We make a difference. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters, and you can subscribe to them. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. You can email them to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to Dion Anderson for ably filling in for Heather Clancy. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving toward a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And this episode is sponsored by Salesforce. With Sustainability Cloud, you can track, analyze, and report environmental data to take climate action. For more information, visit salesforce.com slash sustainability.